All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Sean Steele Law Firm podcast. We have a very special episode in store for you today. With us today, joining us live from uh, his, his bat cave uh, in the hospital somewhere, is Dr. Andrew Fox. Dr. Andrew Fox is a neurosurgeon uh, and the uh, head of neurosurgery for Providence, Providence Cedar Sinai, is that right? Correct. Providence Cedar Sinai Tarzana Medical Center. Awesome. Dr. Fox, thank you so much for being with us. We really, really appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So let's jump right in. Let's, let's tell, talk a little bit about um, let's talk a little bit about neurosurgery, maybe from 30,000 feet as it relates to PI. I mean, What's 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 your background in? What's your bread and butter in terms of procedures? Talk to the talk to us a little bit about uh, neurosurgery and PI. Hey, look at you know neurosurgery. We're we're usually the last ones to see the patient. You know, it all starts with initial examination. Typically, uh, my chiropractor colleagues will see them, evaluate them, get the studies done, and maybe refer them out for for pain management afterwards. And if they're not better, then they end up seeing us in the office for back pain or leg pain or neck pain or arm pain, weakness, those sorts of things. And uh, looking at it from the 30,000 foot perch is I want to see that workup being done accurately step-by-step where examinations are done, appropriate studies are ordered. So when it gets to me, that surgical decision that's needed can be there. Right. So, so what types of, what types of surgeries is a neurosurgeon doing? And, and forgive me if this is sort of maybe rudimentary, but uh, for, for my sake, and maybe if anybody on the call doesn't know or listening in, what, what kind of surgeries is a neurosurgeon doing that an orthopedic surgeon, either a regular ortho or an extremity ortho, uh, is not doing? What, what, where's that demarcation line? Yeah, the ortho spine surgeons and the neurosurgeons will do the same surgeries in regards to artificial discs, micro discs, fusions, neck or back. Being a neurosurgeon, our capabilities is also to do brain surgery. But if there's tumors involved, we'll go into the spinal cord and be able to treat those as well, while the orthopedic spine surgeons aren't able to do that. Uh, so from a perspective, actually the most common things we see in personal injury of having radiculopathy, a neck pain, arm pain, back pain, we'll do the micro discs and the artificial discs and the fusions. So those are pretty much the same for both the neurosurgeons and the orthopedic spine surgeons. Gotcha. So, you know, all right, shameless plug then. Why, why you, what, what does a neurosurgeon bring to the table if we're talking about doing a fusion or a, a, a micro disc or, uh, you know, a, a, some, something along those lines? Well, that's a great question. Uh, you know, one of the things that I've been asked that before is our training is more extensive in spine than orthopedic surgeons. Our residency seven years where a lot of it, 60% of the time we spend doing spine surgery, orthopedic surgeons, uh, usually a five-year residency where they spend about six months doing spine, maybe a little longer. And if they want to do spine surgery, they have to do a fellowship additional year of training. And then uh, I guess the big thing is, is, you know, if there's any issues in the spinal cord itself or complications, we're adept to take care of it right away. Uh, I've been called by some of my orthopedic colleagues to come help them during spine surgery when they have complications. And they do happen, but th- that's the difference between probably neuro and ortho for the most part. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so what you were talking a little bit about um, the the appropriate workup being done before the case gets to you so that when it does get to you, 
you can make, you can do an effective neurosurgical consult and make the appropriate decisions when it comes to does this patient need surgery or not. Now let's get more specific. What, what do you mean specifically when you talk about workup and who specifically do you mean should be doing it? Well, it starts, you know, day one when the patient is seen. So the initial history that's taken from the patient, the examination, and then the studies that are taken. Uh, I uh, like to see a lot of times patients that get x-rays with flexion extension films. We've had cases where we just do a, a uh, x-ray AP and a lateral or, you know, two or four view and the patient keeps complaining of neck pain. And then eventually they come over and we get a flexion extension and shows some motion or instability as that being a cause. So now it went from an x-ray that was relatively normal to being abnormal. And we can identify the pain generator there and, uh, you know, treat the patient accordingly with either medial branch blocks or ultimately a fusion type surgery. So, so you're seeing chiropractors doing a lot of this workup work? Yeah, it starts there. Though usually if the patient's not getting better, uh, they will order the studies, the MRIs and the x-rays. So one of the set of x-rays I do like to see included are those flexion extension studies. Now, early on when the patient's first evaluated by the chiropractor, I think what safe practice is, is if there's any significant, any deficit that the patient may have that they're complaining about, and it correlates with their exam, is before they maybe start treatment is to get that imaging studies to make sure there isn't something that may need to have a surgical correction immediately. So give me an example of what that might look like. I mean, cause I know, I know a lot of, there's a lot of talk in the world of PI about when to order MRIs and if to order MRIs. Um, some people take a very extreme, you order an MRI for any body part that hurts right away. Some people take a more, hey, you need to have something more substantial than just that hurts. We need radiculopathy, we need we need to see some more, uh, you know, more findings than just pain. Uh, what, what is, where, where do you, where do you draw that line? I look at it as, as getting that examination with the patient. If it's kind of a generalized achiness, weakness, you know, they're still in pain from, you know, whatever injury they may have had accident or, or slip and fall. But if you've got some dermatomal pattern that's correlating or some signs of myelopathy, if they have a Hoffman's or a clonus, those are things that need to be investigated first with imaging before proceeding with uh, treatment. Got it. Um, so they order the MRIs and then, and then talk me through what kinds of findings you would think warrant maybe more immediate or emergent uh, referral to, you know, straight up the chain of command, right? You don't, don't stop at ortho, don't stop at pain management, just go straight to neurosurgery, as opposed to working it up through the normal processes of six months of chiropractic treatment, then you see a pain management doctor, maybe you get an injection, maybe go back for more chiro or some PT or some ACU. And then eventually years later, if it hasn't resolved, which we see a lot of this. And then, you know, then eventually the patient wears down and the chiropractor sort of relents to the possibility that surgery might be necessary. You know, that's, the, that's sort of more the common path. What, what would you expect to see that would be like, okay, we need to, you know, bypass all that. I need to see these people. And so once again, going back, if their examination, they got weakness and they get MRI, let's say they got grip weakness and they get an MRI and it shows large disc herniation, C5, 6, C6, 7 with uh, cord compression and 
the fecal sac being involved, that would be something that should probably get assessed right away. Or of a foot drop, they come in, they've got a foot drop, they do the MRI, they got a large disc. Those are the patients I'd probably send over straight to, to the surgeon and bypass uh, uh, all, all the treatment with pain management and whatnot. Those patients should be assessed to consider for surgical intervention right away. Now you, you go through the, you know, maybe more normal set of processes and then talk me through how that typically works. I mean, do, the, the, the pattern that I just described, are you seeing a lot of that, a lot of, you know, people eventually giving into the notion of, you know, a fusion after years of conservative treatment and, and then, you know, minor surgical vis-a-vis -vis injections, not really solving the problem. Is that, you seeing a lot of that or is, is there some better way to get that person the, the, the intervention that maybe they ultimately will need sooner? Or, I mean, what's, what's the ideal path from your perspective? Like, you know, you follow the treatment plan. You go from least invasive to most invasive. And if people follow that plan, we know that they get treated with you know, chiropractic care typically for about three months. It's not better than maybe a few injections. And they hit the one year to 18 month mark and they're hurting. I think that's the window really for, for a surgical treatment. If a patient's really unable to do most things, their quality of life's affected. 18 months is a fair bit of time to be suffering where now you can identify a patient that's surgical, undergo that intervention to improve their quality of life. Yeah. I mean, I just, I, I'm thinking of a patient I have right now, a client who I, I just talked to in a pre-litigation capacity, right. Talking about possibly moving the case into lit filing a lawsuit. And, you know, in reviewing all the medical records, I noted that, you know, for the last two years, she did uh, chiropractic treatment. She saw a orthopedist and a pain management doctor, um, you know, wasn't really, I think she got one or two injections, but didn't really help. And when I asked her, how's your pain level today in her low back, she said six to eight is a stand, is, is her normal day, a six to eight. I was blown away. I was like, are you for two years post-accident, you're still having six to eight pain on a consistent basis. That to me in my lay understanding is indicative of a real problem that has not been fixed. Not, not just, you know, we're not dealing with, you know, low level two out of 10 pain most days with spikes up to four or five that can mostly be treated with over the counter NSAIDs. Like this is a six, this is this, this person's bad days mean she doesn't get out of bed that day. Yeah. How do we avoid more of those cases? Right. I mean, my, obviously my, my suggestion to her was we need to get you a surgical consult and you need to be seen by somebody who could potentially do surgery because that's insane. How do we, how do we avoid more of those outcomes? Well, you know, the one thing that the pain levels are always uh, subjective, you know, to determine surgical needs, we want not just subjective, but objective data. And you have to determine what the pain generator is. That's really the key in all of this is, okay, your back pain, where is it coming from? Is it disc generated? Is it facet generated? Is it your sacroiliac joint? And that's where the important part of all this is that examination is to help determine where that pain is and then having the modality of treatment to treat that pain generator, whether it be with chiropractic care or a facet block or ultimately a fusion surgery, uh, but determining what area it actually is. 
Um, and to, to answer the question that just came in, the, this was a middle-aged patient. I think she's in her early 50s with no pre-accident pain whatsoever. Um, so, so certainly this is accident related and, and, and a big problem for her. And I, I think you're exactly right that, that diagnosing the cause of the pain is maybe even more important than the, the subjective pain level in instances like that. Um, talk to me about cutting edge. I mean, what, what's on the horizon for, for your level of, your, you know, your kind of intervention. So I, I, you know, we've all heard about micros. We've all heard about disc replacements. We've all heard about, uh, fusions. What's, what's the next 20 years of neurosurgery look like vis-a-vis uh, PI? I can't tell you it's a secret. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of the new data that's coming out, what we're looking at, and it's very early, is obviously the stem cells and the PRP. PRP, we know it's helped a lot for joints. The spine data is still up coming out and showing some efficacy for the axial back pain and be used actually during fusion surgeries to help with fusions. The stem cell data is not that great yet. And I think the next five years is, is what we're going to be looking for for treatment for back pain with stem cells. Uh, the artificial discs are really the, the greatest technology we have out there to be able to treat the axial back pain, I think. And there's different companies now coming out with artificial discs. Initially, we only had a couple. Now there's about four or five on the market. Recently, one of the companies had uh, their lumbar artificial disc. I had approved for a two-level by the FDA. And I found good success with that company in being able to put uh, those artificial discs in it. It's all about patient selection. And, you know, good results, obviously picking the patients well for what's appropriate, what surgery is appropriate for them. But that's probably the mainstay right now for the latest in that. We do have endoscopic surgery available as well. Uh, you know, I don't know if it's any faster or better than the typical microdisc yet. The data is not on on that. Patients do very well with microdiscs. But uh, the endoscopic is also the next trend in probably personal injury that we're seeing. Talk to me a little bit about that. I, I'm not as I'm not as versed in endoscopic. To, to talk to me like I'm an intelligent 15 year old. So endoscopic is what we do is using a camera, essentially to go in there with a minimally invasive approach through a small incision to be able to visualize, you know, the disc and go ahead and remove it. Uh, it may add a little bit of time on. It's very user dependent in the sense of the learning curve is, is a little bit steeper. So you got to do a few quite a bit of cases to really get comfortable with it. But it, it's uh, it's just a little sexier than just saying we're going to make an incision. Sure, of course. Well, and things things like, uh, you know, ortho, uh, arthroscopic, for example, in orthopedics, the knee surgeries and shoulder surgeries, I mean, they revolutionized those surgeries. I mean, what, what used to be a, a you know, multi-month recovery process has, you know, a couple of tiny scars nowadays. So I, 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 Obviously, it sounds like there very well might be a, a similar, you know, aid in recovery time, lowering of complication rates that are possible with this sort of endoscopic. Am I reading into this correctly? No, you're absolutely right, Alex. It, it's really about becoming more minimally invasive, being able to do things with a smaller incision. They're both outpatient surgeries. I think one of the things that we've seen that's revolutionized spine surgery is most of our cases now are outpatient. The whole healthcare system, PI or not PI, has gone to more of the ambulatory surgery setting. 
and where we're doing cervical fusions, artificial discs, even some people are doing lumbar fusions uh, as outpatient procedures. Um, are you finding that those outpatient procedures are having faster heal times and recovery periods as a result of newer techniques, or is it sort of the same? You know, we do see recovery times being faster. Um, you know, we've learned a lot through many years of, of uh, spine surgery evolving, particularly the last 20 years, of how to do things, less retraction on tissue, more minimally invasive, faster recoveries, people getting back to work. I recently operated on a uh, um, uh, attorney who had a two-level artificial disc, and he was back in the office the next day. Well, there's there's never been a less uh, physically in, uh, demanding job than mine. Um, <laughs> um, let's talk about uh, let's talk about TBI. I mean, it, it's this it's this big elephant in the room in PI, and everybody likes to throw the buzzword around. Um, I have this is one of my favorite questions for, for doctors vis-a-vis TBI. Does it mean anything clinically speaking? Is there any real true definition of a traumatic brain injury or is it something that lawyers made up for purposes of juries? No, of course, TBI is real. I mean, we deal with it in sports. I'm a a big MMA fan and used to work for the USC doing some of their doctoring and taking care of the fighters and it's real. Um, you know, you get hit in your head, particularly the fighters or football players, repetitive times, they suffer TBIs, an accident patient who hits their head significantly or a slip and fall that hits the back of there can have a TBI. And a lot of it is a clinical diagnosis. Uh, you know, imaging studies can help support it as well. Uh, I don't deal too much with it in my practice, but, you know, there's new MRIs that are able to pick up on TBI injuries are more sensitive and specific than the standard uh, MRIs that we order. Uh, usually my neurology colleagues uh, help see those patients and diagnose them and treat them as well. But it's a clinical diagnosis. So they'll use, you know, their examination, last certain questions. But that's something early on as well when the patient's evaluated by the chiropractors, even though historically chiropractors will just deal mostly with the joints and the neck and the back, it's a good question to ask early on to establish what injuries this person had and then help delineate what treatments they're going to need. Yeah. So we, so, so first of all, I I know the TBI is real. Um, I have many clients who, who have them. Um, I, I do hear a lot of times questions about what the true definition of a TBI is in much the same way that we hear those questions about what a, the true definition of a concussion is uh, in that it doesn't, it's one of those things that doesn't usually get a very clean objective diagnosis. We uh, uh, you know, set of set of diagnoses or criteria. If you hit these three benchmarks, you have this, you know, you have a TBI or you have a concussion. Uh, it's, it's more subjective than that. Um, and so a lot of times there's questions, especially from the defense bar when I'm, you know, when I'm claiming TBI injuries uh, as to, well, what really is a TBI and how do we really know? And what's a, what's an MTBI? I mean, what's a moderate TBI versus a full-fledged TBI? Um, so that, that sort of stuff comes up in my line of work a lot where we're getting quite, you know, pushback just based on the, just based on the, uh, the nomenclature we're using in, with this TBI, which, you know, is, 
is new. I mean, it, it's not new, new. People have been hit in the head for, throughout history, but T, the, the, the calling it of a TBI, it seems to be a new phenomenon in PI as a way to, you know, justify additional treatment and additional uh, uh, subspecialties. I mean, we use it a ton. I mean, we use it a ton to justify things like neuroconsults and um, and psychological consults and uh, you know those inpatient treatment. I've got a client right now that hit his head really hard on a in a uh, in a gym, uh, and you know he's he's doing inpatient therapy for a long time. I mean, he's you know he can't remember how to drive home to his house from the market. Like he's got real he's got a real you know a brain injury um, that I think anybody would consider traumatic. I, I was more asking you if there's regularly uh, accepted, you know, way of diagnosing a TBI that you're aware of. Yeah, I, you know, the, the TBI, I think the typical way is the clinical exam. If there's any suspicion of that, it's seen early, early on, it should be referred out to a neurologist. And then they'll do their standard testing that they have their many mental exam tests and probably order the necessary studies. But it really is, it comes down to a clinical diagnosis. And, you know, the, the brain is always a black box for most physicians to begin with. And uh, they're like, give it to the neurologist or the neurosurgeon. We don't want to deal with it. Right. This isn't our, our cup of tea. And that's what you should do. You should just say, hey, I think you may have had a concussion or a TBI. I'm going to refer you to the neurologist. And, you know, start the care. The earlier, the better for those patients as well. Once you diagnose them, you want to treat the brain. There are a lot of things that goes into TBI treatment of, you know, brain rest, as we call it, is making sure they're not too active, not using their brain all the time, letting it shut down for a while so it could heal. Now, in terms of surgery, I mean, you, you certainly have a, a concentra concentrated group of, of listeners right now who... Um, you know, see, see surgery, I think appropriately as the last resort and as a, as a, 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 you know, the maximally invasive method of treatment. Talk to me about cases where it's not appropriate, right? Where you're in a surgical consultation and you're like, this person doesn't need surgery. It's not appropriate either ever, or certainly not yet. I mean, what, what's, what is, what, where's your threshold for eh, not, not with this patient, not yet. This is, this is maybe too, too early or too, too aggressive or too, I mean, how does, how do you make that determination? Yeah, look at uh, younger patients, obviously twenties, early thirties with MRIs that are normal. Let's say one to two bulge, one to two millimeter bulges, their MRI T2 weighted images show that the discs are well hydrated. You know, doc, I've got pain. I got pain, pain, pain. All right. Well, this is pain, but it's maybe not a surgical pain that's going to help you. I mean, the worst thing we can do as surgeons is operate and make the patients worse. Uh, so we got to be cognizant of that as well, uh, taking someone to the operating room with, with normal looking MRIs. Uh, then, you know, you have the ones that are in that gray area. They got a maybe three to four millimeter bulge. Uh, you know, it's off to the side. They got a little bit of leg pain, but the nerve's not that compressed. And that's the workup. You know, you do an EMG, you do something to corroborate the need for surgery. I think that's what's really important. But, you know, patients that have got really normal MRIs and just complaining of pain, those are probably not great surgical referrals because uh, there's not much we can do for that as well. And it's hard to establish the, you know, what the pain generator is going to be. 
Sure. Uh, Dr. Duff, and I want to thank Dr. Duff for being on here. Uh, he asked a question. It's a pretty technical one. He's asking if, if in the event of a concussion, should they request MRI slices to be thinner than uh, your normal four millimeter slices, like two or three millimeters? Do you do, you do that in your practice or do you recommend that they do that? Uh, I don't typically, t I don't uh, see the TBIs in my practice, uh, usually the neurologist, but they will typically order thinner slices sometimes. And I, I think it's probably best to just have the patient refer that to the neurologist. Neurologist may be specific as to what type of MRI they want rather than it being ordered and reordered. And uh, that's a great point. I, you know, commonly my, you know, dumb lawyer brain will, will think, let's just get an MRI and, and get to the bottom of this. Um, not realizing that when you get into the subspecialties, there are many different types of MRIs with and without contrast uh, that, that are, you know, different uh, Tesla levels, different, you know, strengths of the magnet that uh, will radically alter. And you've got, you know, each doctor wanting something slightly different. So obviously yielding to whomever we're referring out to uh, probably is best in those instances. Um, Talk to me about chiropractic reports. We got five minutes left. Talk to me about chiropractic reports. I mean, when you're, I mean, let's get into the sort of nitty gritty of it. I mean, when you're reading up on a patient uh, before you do a surgical consult, you, I have no doubt you read the chiropractor's report. What do you, what kind of stuff are you looking for that, that is helpful to you in terms of making your decisions and what kind of stuff are you, are, are, do you find less helpful or, or wish you saw less of? Well, you know, the final report's always the most helpful, it kind of summarizes everything. You know, in, in seeing patients, you may have not all the time to read the entire report at that time, but you want to see the treatment they've undergone, that they're not really getting better, that the symptoms were consistent, you know, it was neck pain with right upper extremity pain. We did this, we did some decompression or the treatments, the TENS units, the, the heat ice packs, whatever it may be, and they just didn't get better. And then uh, you want to see that consistency from kind of day one till it gets then. And some people do get better and, you know, they're reporting what they're reporting. It is what it is. And if patients get better, great. And maybe you had a relapse later, it got worse, which does happen. You know, people got better with treatment and then uh, all of a sudden pain came back. Then they end up with the surgeon, but just be, I guess, you know, when you're writing your reports, it is what it is when you're treating them. Today's a bad day. Tomorrow's a good day. And, you know, at the end, that final report's really is the summarization of that. So to me, it's that, it's that final report I look at and decide, okay, overall, they did their good treatment. It was reasonable, necessary, but they're still hurting. Gotcha. Hey, Doc, with uh, three minutes left, I want to certainly thank you for, for coming on and, uh, and being here with us. Um, I, I see Sean has popped up here on our screen. I don't know if I can't see him, but I'm not sure if he uh, had something he wanted to. Oh no, he's gonna he's going to physically come into my office. I just wonder if there's any chance, Doctor. Have you told the folks uh, where you're operating from, so to speak, and what yeah. it, what what areas you serve? We we have offices in uh, Sherman Oaks, Calabasas, and we're opening soon in downtown LA. I also go up north to uh, Walnut Creek in Sacramento. And we have a surgery center up in Sacramento. So if there's smaller cases, we'll do them up there. The surgeries that I do are typically here in the Valley. We do have a center that we operate out of in West Hollywood. Okay. So there's multiple locations. As you know, we are a pro chiropractic law firm. So 
Um, the vast majority of the patients uh, are seeking chiropractors because they're afraid to death of medicine, knives, uh, surgery, and drugs. And uh, so this is definitely a last resort. But you've been known as being a very friendly physician for chiropractors and, uh, and, and, and looking at trying to avoid the most uh, intrusive operations. That's why you're here. So I, yeah. I really appreciate that. No, thank you. And yeah, I think, like I said, surgery is one of those things you get better pick it and it should be the last thing that you do. And that's when you end up with good results. Yeah. yeah. Hey, Doc, you just, uh, you just hung your shingle. Uh, you were telling me off the air, you just hung your shingle uh, recently and we wanted to wish you some mazel tough on that. Give us a nice shameless plug. What's the new, uh, what's the new what, digs? What does mazel tough mean? It means <laughs> congratulations. Oh, okay. Make sure. Okay. Yeah. The name of uh, the group's total spine Institute. And uh, we're going to combine the neurosurgery spine and ortho spine and with pain management to make it a one-stop shop to be able to provide total care for our spine patients. Uh, you know, I've been involved with systems my entire career from Sutter and Providence building it for them. And I just thought now it's time to go off on my own and do it. That's fantastic. Where's that office going to be? So our main office is Sherman Oaks, but as I mentioned, we have the office in Calabasas that's being built out. And then, uh, downtown LA, we're looking to expand and then uh, up north, Walnut Creek in Sacramento. Wise choice in Sherman Oaks. That's where I earned my uh, elementary school degree at Sherman Oaks Elementary. elementary all, all, all six years, I, I passed. And he's got right, the, right down the street. Proudly behind his desk. Docs, I want to thank everybody on this call for being here. Uh, the uh, the uh, audio of this is available anywhere where podcasts are, iTunes, Amazon, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, the video version of this will be available on YouTube, uh, as well as all the back. Okay. Don't, do it. Don't do it anymore. Yeah. No, Sean, no, no. Is, Sean is making tons of noise in the background for everybody. Um, but uh, but I want to thank everybody for being on today. Uh, like I said, back issues available on YouTube and iTunes and wherever else. Dr. Fox, thank you so, so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Alex. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.